this is Julian Charles of TheMindRenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome to an interview that I had recently with Mr. Kurt Haskell. But first, let me take the opportunity to apologise for the feed problem that we've been having recently. As many of you must know, over the last couple of weeks, we've been having lots of problems with the feeds and people have not been able to subscribe newly to the podcast using the RSS feeds. And anybody who'd subscribed previously to those feeds found that they got the message this feed no longer exists, which wasn't true. It did exist. There was just some kind of bug in the system that was causing that message to be displayed. And iTunes also wasn't updating, which was giving the impression that we were no longer broadcasting, which is also not true. It was very difficult to find out what the problem was. And of course, I visited all sorts of forums and uh, read all sorts of articles. And I even asked our software developer for the podcast manager, and even he didn't have any idea what the problem was. Fortunately, and this is very uncharacteristic of me because I'm not really that IT-minded, I did just manage to find out what the problem was and uh, put it right. So there we are. I'm quite proud of myself and we're back to where we were. But if this problem recurs or there's any other problem with the website, I'd be very grateful if people would let me know because it's always good, of course, to get onto these things straight away. Thanks to all of you who sent emails of support during that time. That is very much appreciated. And generally, thanks to everybody for your patience during this time. So that's all I wanted to say. And we'll move on to the interview with Mr. Kurt Haskell. Hello, everybody. Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm very pleased to welcome to the program Mr. Kurt Haskell, who is an attorney and senior partner in the Haskell Law Firm based in Taylor, Michigan. In 2009, on Christmas Day, Kurt and his wife Laurie were on board Northwest Airlines Flight 253 bound for Detroit, on which the so-called underwear bomber Farouk Abdul-Mutalab attempted to set off an explosive or incendiary device sewn into his underwear as part of, at least according to the official account of things, as part of an Al-Qaeda attack against the United States of America. But this is a narrative that our guest continues to reject based upon the events that he witnessed at the time and the way in which the matter was subsequently handled by the authorities, which has led him very reluctantly to the conclusion that he was in fact in the presence of a staged false flag event organized by the US itself. And it is to share his story and to explain the reasons why he reached this conclusion that he joins us today. So Kurt Haskell, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to speak to us on The Mind Renewed. No problem. Good to be on the show. Now, could I start by asking you to explain what it is that you experienced that day? Because although your story has had a fair amount of coverage in the alternative media, I'm not aware that it's had very much attention at all in the mainstream media. So I'm not assuming that many listeners will be necessarily familiar with what you have to say. So could you take us back to that day when all these things happened? Sure. My wife and I were on vacation in Africa, Uganda to be exact. We live in Michigan in the United States, and we were flying back. We had a connecting flight first to Kenya, then to Amsterdam, then to Detroit. It was Christmas Day, and we were waiting to get on our flight back to Detroit. And a lot of people had packages, Christmas presents or heavy coats or whatever, because it was cold. And there weren't two seats together anywhere at the gate where we could sit by each other. So we sat on the floor near the boarding gate. And my wife got out some cards and we were playing cards. And uh, I saw two people approach the desk. One looked like uh, an African guy. He looked like a, a later teenager to me. 
and he, he looked like he was kind of walking with uh, what looked like a wealthier, looked like he was Indian to me, Indian-looking man, a little older. He was maybe around age 50, and so there was quite a bit of age difference. Was this the guy in the sharp dressed suit? Yeah, he had on a tan suit, suit coat, no tie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he looked like he was wealthier. So I was just kind of people watching as we played cards, wondering why they were together. And they went up to the counter, and I could hear the conversation. And just the Indian man talked. The African guy did not say anything. He just kind of stood there. And the Indian man said, this man needs to get on the flight, but he doesn't have a passport. And the girl at the counter said, well, you have to have a passport to get on the flight. Then kind of arguing with her, the Indian man said, well, he's from Sudan. We do this all the time. And she kind of referred, and then she said, well, you're going to have to go talk to a manager down the hallway. And she referred the two of them down the secure hallway where nobody else was even allowed to go. And they went by themselves, went down the hallway, and I quit watching. And I didn't really think anything of it at the time. Little did I know that about eight hours later, the African man that I saw would be trying to blow up our plane as we came into land in Detroit. So this man who was with the African... This this man was clearly somebody in authority then from the way he spoke. Yes, exactly. He spoke in perfect English, an American accent, and he was pointed to go down a secure hallway. There was no escort of him at all. Uh, He was allowed to walk this man down there himself. Also, he said, you know, we do this all the time. I guess what I make out of that is we get people on planes without a passport all the time. I don't know what to make out of that. Am I right in thinking that a Dutch newspaper also reported this, that Matalab had been allowed through passport control? So it's not just your word saying this. It is, in fact, a newspaper reported on this. Is that right? Yeah, and there's actually an article, which I have a copy of. It's since been erased off online, but it was from, I believe the paper was called the News Herald Scotland. In that article, it said that Abdul Motilab actually did not have a passport, so there was an admission there, too. So there were some partial admissions and news sources as to what I'm saying. You know, and there was some initial discussions of him not actually going through security, and obviously, To anyone that's been to Schiphol Airport, you would know that security and passport control are in the same line. So I'm not sure how you go through one and not the other. I don't think Abdul Mutalab actually went through either. I believe he was escorted around both. I can't confirm that, but that seems to be the most logical conclusion to me. And you identified this Mutalab then. He was the man that you saw there, and he was also the man who was involved in the incident on the plane. Yes, I did identify him. I wasn't able to identify him when he attempted an emergency landing because the device that Abdul Mutalab had did not detonate, but actually instead started a fire, burning the floor, a couple seats, and went up the wall to the ceiling. Uh, it had to be put out with a fire extinguisher. And uh, we did an emergency landing in Detroit. The incident took place as we were coming into land. We were just starting our descent, so we had about 10 minutes after the incident until we landed. You know, and then police boarded the plane. Everyone was told to sit in seats. We weren't allowed to evacuate. You know, here I am thinking there's an explosive device on our plane, at least one. We don't know if there are accomplices or anything in a carry-on bag or, or in the baggage compartment below. But here we are sitting on a runway. We taxi up to the airport terminal. We're right by the terminal. You know, something could have detonated, killing everyone on the plane, blowing up the terminal, and nobody would have known any different. 
if, in fact, this was an actual bombing. But we sat on our plane for 20 to 30 minutes. It was kind of strange when the incident took place because Abdul Mutsalab didn't say a word at all. When a man came up and grabbed him and put him in a headlock, he didn't fight back at all. It was very strange. And instead of tackling or holding him in place, he hauled him into the first-class area. I thought that was all very strange. Eventually, Abdul Mutsalab was taken off the plane, and he stood in the doorway for about 30 seconds to a minute by a police officer. And that's when I got another good look at him, and, and I turned to my wife, and I said, you know, I think I saw something important at the airport. You know, I saw this guy before he boarded, and it's the same guy. You know, and that's when I made the connection. And after that happened, were you taken to the baggage collection area? Because I understand that another man was also involved at this point. That's right. We were uh, eventually, after about 30 minutes, let off the plane. We were taken to a baggage claim area that had been evacuated. Nobody else was allowed down there. It was just law enforcement and people that were on our flight. And we had to stand along a wall. We had a little area all of us had to stand in. And we weren't allowed to use our phones or eat or go to the bathroom or anything like that. After about an hour, they brought on in dogs, and they were sniffing for bombs. And the law enforcement officers were taking them around, sniffing our carry-on bags. And one of them found something in the bag of another Indian-looking man. This one looked to be about 20 years younger than the one that I saw at Skip Bowl. He was maybe around age 30 or so. He had on orange, and some people refer to him as the man in orange. He was immediately taken away for questioning, and they took him into a room that was near us you know, on the side and it had a door, and they went in there. He was in there quite a while. Mm-hmm. Not handcuffed yet, but when they brought him out, then the officers handcuffed him and took him away. And when they did that, an announcement was made. It went something like this. I'm sure you've seen what just happened here. You're not safe in this area. We're going to have to move you to another area, something like that. And we were then escorted out of this room, and we were marched into a hallway, and we had to stand there for a few more hours. But eventually, the lead police officer came up and said, we now have those responsible for this in custody, not the man, not the bomber, those, plural. We're now going to do an interview of each of you, and then you'll be free to go. And this was after about five hours or so. So we were there quite a while. And then they took us back to the room we were initially in, the baggage claim area that had been evacuated. You know, and we did interviews with FBI agents, and that's when I told them the story. And initially, they seemed interested. The officer I told the story to actually called another man over and said, hey, sit in on this. You know, this may be important. And two of them listened to it, and then they said, okay, you're free to go. And we left. Okay, so at that point, in your mind, when they said, uh, we have those responsible, you understood that to be Mutalab himself, although you didn't know his name at the time, and also this man in orange, those were the two, and they had them, and they'd said that they had them. Correct. Yes, two people. And um, am I right in thinking that you were contacted by the FBI a few days after that event, and you offered to continue helping with them with their investigation, but their attitude was very odd. Can you explain what was odd about their behavior? Yeah, this time they came to my law office. It was a few days later. And I'm an attorney, and I know how things work in the law and courts and investigations and that kind of thing. You know, I expected them to come in with pictures or a video of the man that I saw at Schiphol Airport, the man that helped Abdul Mutala board the plane without a passport. To me, he would have been, or should have been, one of the most wanted terrorists in the world. And I possibly might have been the only one that saw this happen. Maybe. I don't know. 
So I thought they would at least bring in still pictures or a video of him and say, hey, is this you know the guy that you witnessed? That didn't happen. I actually asked them to show me the pictures, and they kind of looked at each other and kind of chuckled under their breath like it was a joke or something. And instead they showed me a series of about 10 still pictures. The first eight, I had no idea who the people were, and the last two were both of Abdul Mutalab. Obviously, they didn't need me to identify Abdul Mutalab. You have almost 300 people aboard a flight, don't need me to identify him. A lot of other people can identify him. But they kept asking me to identify him and trying to make me think he was somebody else or trying to confuse me is how I took it. You don't need to talk to me about Abdul Mutalab. You don't need to talk to me about him. You, what you need to talk to me about is the man I saw in Amsterdam. Yeah. Did they take at all what you said about the man in Amsterdam? Did they show any interest at all? They asked me about it, but it was I took it as they weren't really trying to get information out of me. They were trying to make me think I didn't see what I did, trying to plant seeds of doubt in my mind. Like, maybe you didn't see this, Kurt. Maybe it was this. Mm. You know, Kurt, are you sure you can tell the difference between two different African-looking men, this sort of thing? You know, trying to put doubt in my mind, you know. But instead of actually showing me pictures or videos saying, hey, is this what happened there? You know, we have this video from Schiphol, the airport with the most security cameras in the world, by the way, you know, at an incident that took place near a boarding gate. Without question, there's a video of what happened. It's never, ever been released anywhere. It's actually been sealed now by the United States government permanently. Has it really? Yeah, based on national security grounds. I would really like to know Indeed. what the national security grounds are, something that took place in a foreign airport, you know, except you have an undercover CIA agent in the video, which is exactly what I think they're hiding. Mm-hmm. So as far as you know, the, the U.S. authorities do actually have the video. They have the video. Mm. It was sealed by Nancy Edmonds, the judge in the trial, permanently sealed. And did not the story also keep changing as far as the FBI was concerned? Am I right in thinking that at some points they said that this man did exist and at other points saying, well, in fact, it, there were two men on the flight or perhaps three men? On the, I'm not quite sure how that story kept changing. Yeah, you know, very early on, strange things started happening that made me wonder whether the United States government wanted to actually conduct an investigation or conduct some kind of cover-up to the story. You know, one of them was what I just mentioned, my second interview with the FBI, but another one was there was an active attempt to cover up the arrest of the second man that all of us, you know, this wasn't just me that saw the second man, but probably nearly everyone from our flight because we were all standing there. And the first press release from the government was that only one man was arrested. And quickly, a few passengers came out and were talking about two men being arrested, and then the government had to change the story. And it changed six times. You know, other versions were, you know, there was a man from another flight arrested, taken into custody, and then that was found to not be true because, like I said a few minutes ago, we were the only ones on this floor. It had been evacuated. You know, and then another story was, well, yeah, he was from Flight 253, but he was arrested on an agricultural violation. You know, and that's impossible because he was detected from bomb-sniffing dogs. Another story was that he was taken into custody due to an immigration violation. 
you know, and it, it changed six times. And here I am watching all these press releases thinking, what is going on here? You know, one lie after another, the store keeps changing six different times, you know, and just so happens to be that this man was also Indian-looking, just like the man at Skipple Airport. So I definitely, you know, and we have the statements by the police officer, definitely I think he was also involved in this. So uh, to me, this was red flag setting off in my mind that there was some sort of cover-up going on very early on. So I started investigating. Obviously, when you almost lose your life on a flight, you want to know why. This started myself on a two-year-long investigation that I put about 2,000 hours of my own time into trying to find out what actually happened. And my final conclusion was that Abdul Mutalab was given an intentionally defective bomb by an undercover, likely CIA agent, likely near Skipple Airport, to stage a fake terrorist attack over the United States on Christmas Day. And that's what really happened that day. And I can get into more about what led me to believe to that if you want me to get into it. Well, yes, I would be interested to know that because the official position, uh, which I think was announced by Patrick Kennedy, the Under Secretary of State for Management, claimed that Metalab was being tracked as part of a counter-terrorism operation and that therefore the authorities couldn't intercept him because that would have compromised the operation that was taking place. That would run, of course, contrary to your explanation. So can I ask you then to say why you don't find that a plausible explanation? Oh, sure. Well, you can even see it with some of the most recent leaks that have been going on here in the United States. The United States government has lost nearly all credibility for telling the truth, especially in matters of national security. But, you know, this happened a few years ago. So I'll get into... I'll get into what led me to that belief. It, it happened over time. You know, like I said, initially I just had questions about why the U.S. government wasn't telling the truth about what happened that day and why it wasn't having an eyewitness identify what should be one of the most wanted men in the world, two big anomalies to me, which led me into my investigation. So I started reading everything on the story, talking to passengers, going to court hearings, talking to Mr. Anthony Chambers, who was appointed a helper attorney for Abdul Mutalab because Abdul Mutalab refused to have an attorney. So I started talking to him, too, and that's what led me to my final conclusion. But first of all, there was a denial by the U.S. government that anything happened at Skipwall, that Abdul Mutalab acted alone. The U.S. government came out and said it watched several hundred hours of video surveillance from Skipple Airport, and there's no accomplice on it at all. I knew that statement was, in fact, a lie. So I had witnessed it with my own eyes, and I knew Skipple Airport had cameras everywhere, especially at each gate. Without question, they would, if nothing else, they have cameras at the gate, uh, for sure. So I knew that statement was a lie. So now we have another lie by the U.S. government, and they're adding up, and I'm wondering why. Hmm. And then they had conducted hearings in Congress here on the issue. And that's when Patrick Kennedy came out and said, look, we knew Abdul Mutalab was a terrorist. We let him on the plane intentionally so that when the plane landed in Detroit, we could track him and he would lead us to more terrorists in the United States. Okay, sounds like somewhat of a believable story, maybe. But 
And now we have an admission that the United States government let a known terrorist on our flight intentionally. I don't, I don't know how many of your listeners would be okay with that, but I'm definitely not. Well, I'm certainly not. Absolutely, yes. Right. So even if we leave it at that, to me that's completely unacceptable. But it goes further than that. Patrick Kennedy then says, we're going to track him once he landed in Detroit. But there were 50 FBI officers at the gate ready to question Abdul Mutalab, even before this incident on the plane. It was the middle of Christmas Day. So the fact that they were going to question him when he landed does not lend credibility to the theory that he was going to be tracked undercover. It lends more credibility to the fact that they knew an event would take place on the plane and that people would survive it and then Abdul Mutalab would be taken in questioning. I was told this by someone I know in the press here in the United States. So that's how I know that there were 50 FBI agents waiting at the gate for Abdul Mutalab. And not to track him, but in fact to question him. It would have been impossible for them to get to the airport that quickly because the event took place within 10 minutes of landing. And the airport in Detroit is not in the city. It's out 20 miles or so in the middle of Christmas Day. It's not like FBI agents are sitting around doing nothing. Hardly any of them would have even been working that day. So there we have another anomaly. Not to mention the fact that there was an explosion. So if you're actually going to let a known terrorist on a plane... You have to think that maybe you would give him some extra security to make sure there was no explosive device on him. And then, of course, we have the anomaly of him boarding what appears to be through an escort around security and most definitely without a passport, only boarding due to improvement of a manager. So you start adding all these things up. But, I mean, even even in the best case, if it is, as they say, a counterterrorism operation, if that's true, they nevertheless still risked all your lives by having this fire on board. So even that, even that interpretation is hardly a glowing recommendation of that policy. Exactly. And it, it, if that's true, also if that's true, you would have air marshals surrounding him, most likely. So you knew he would not do anything on the plane. You would make sure he didn't have an explosive device. Yet this was a flight that had not one air marshal on it. You know, you have to look at their explanation to say, does this make sense? And it does not make sense. And you look at all these different pieces. So that explanation to me goes out the window. But then you also have the fact that, which to me was the final piece of the puzzle, there was a story here in the newspaper in Detroit. And it took about a year and a half to get to trial, maybe almost two years. This was well into that period. Anthony Chambers, who was the helper attorney, or standby attorney, was interviewed by the paper here in Detroit. And what he said was there have been explosive experts hired by the United States government for the prosecution. And those experts even say that the bomb was impossibly defective because it lacked a detonator. So now you have to look at how could that have happened. Well, the official story is that Abdul Mutsalab, you know, was given this bomb by al-Qaeda. He flew into Yemen had it sewn in his underwear, then traveled back to Nigeria, bought a one-way ticket for cash, yada, yada, yada. It was all this big planned event. And you have to ask yourself and think logically, would Al-Qaeda have done this and given out an impossibly defective bomb? And the answer is no, 100% no. It would have given him a bomb that for sure would have worked and blown up the plane. So then you have to ask the question, why would he have a defective bomb that lacked a detonator. 
to answer that question answers the entire case because you'd have to think, well, who would benefit from a failed terrorist attack? And you have to look at, obviously, the United States government, one in which was spending billions, if not trillions of dollars a year on the war on terror, using it as a pretext to invade various countries, to change numerous laws here in the United States. And remember, this was 2009, there had been eight years with no terrorist attacks in the United States. So people were starting to get a little upset. The economy is getting bad. Why are we spending all this money on the war on terror, et cetera, et cetera? Well, you bring in a terrorist attack, and there you go. Sure. I can see there does seem to be a clear motivation for such a thing. But if we were to go back to the purported scenario that this was, in fact, an al-Qaeda attack, um, it seems to me that I, I take your point that they would have given him a, an active device, not an inactive or a, you know, an impossibly compromised device. Uh, but nevertheless, I suppose you could say, ah, well, in fact, the U.S. authorities were so entwined with this operation that they were able to arrange in some way for him to have this ineffective device, even though it was still being organized from al-Qaeda in some way, but it would seem to me, I don't know whether you agree, that that would then be such a kind of intertwined operation that it would be almost seamless. Uh, you could hardly make any differentiation then between al-Qaeda and the, uh, the intelligence of the United States. I don't see how you could separate the two at that point. Exactly. This would have had to have been done from an undercover U.S. agent posing as a member of al-Qaeda or several and actually, we had a very similar plot to that in the Underwear Bomber 2 case in 2012, which I think was a complete hoax, but I don't, I don't want to distract from this story. But in that case, you have the government admitting that, in fact, it was using undercover agents as al-Qaeda members to get what would have been an airplane bomb from al-Qaeda. So you at least had that admission in Underwear Bomber 2, which goes back and lends credibility to what... Uh, my conclusion from this case was, you, you know, you had the admission in that case, and obviously it's logical to say, well, they're doing it in 2012, they were doing it in 2009 also. So, you know, it's just another piece of the puzzle. You know, I liken the story as, uh, you know, a thousand-piece puzzle, where if you look at one or two pieces, you don't get the whole picture, and it's easy to believe the official story, but if you look at each piece of the puzzle, take time to put them together and think about it, the only conclusion is the one I'm giving you. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. It's a very powerful point to make. And one part of the puzzle which you need to mention is how the mainstream media covered this, because I certainly looking here in the BBC, I just went to their website and I put your name in and there's just no, no mention of you whatsoever as a key witness in this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, how, how was yeah. this handled over in the US? Well, you know, initially... I was on the mainstream media all over the place. So you may, may seem a, an inter interview me or our video, mm. you know, in the two weeks after it happened. But after two weeks, President Obama gave a speech where he basically came out and said, oops, we just made a mistake and let this guy on, which was, you know, is a lie. It was even contradicted by the Patrick Kennedy testimony in Congress where even Patrick Kennedy, that they actually put him on the plane on purpose right. to track him. President Obama said, oh, no, we just made a mistake. And so they're even contradicting themselves there. But You just have to choose which one to believe. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, they're both lying. They can't keep their story straight. <laughs> but uh, after sure. he came out and said that, then the mainstream media no longer wanted to talk to me because what I had been saying went against what both of them were saying. 
and would, you know, if the media kept putting me out there, it would obviously shed bad light on the government and President Obama, which, of course, we cannot have here in the United States. You know, it's more important to protect the president's reputation than to tell the truth in the media. So then I was completely ignored until approximately a week before the trial, with the exception of maybe two interviews that were done by a local television station here that you can find on the Internet from uh, about a year after the incident by Fox Detroit. Shortly before the trial, now we're talking almost two years after the incident, the media again started talking about me because Abdul Mutalab, they couldn't ignore me anymore because he indicated that I would not only be a witness, but I would be his only witness in the trial. So then, obviously, they were forced to talk about who I was and what I was going to say. So you may see some things on the Internet from shortly before the trial about me. That's a whole other story in itself, the trial. We can get into that, too, if you want. Well, yes, I'd be interested to hear about that because you were, I believe, it was said that you couldn't have, um, or that uh, the attorney, Anthony Chambers, wasn't allowed to have access to the evidence on the grounds that the government might be sued as a consequence of this. Can you explain what all that was about? Yeah, you know, I, before the trial happened, there were various hearings for, you know, different points, and I would go to nearly all of them when my time permitted. And I went to one of them. It was for Anthony Chambers to see. Now, he wasn't Abdelmutalam's regular attorney. He was only a standby or a helper. So what he told the judge was, look, I can't give this guy advice, Abdelmutalam. I can't really help him unless I see what evidence there is against him, which is a logical point. You know, how can you advise someone when you don't know what the evidence is? Sure. And the government's attorney said, look, if we give Anthony Chambers this evidence, it's not protected by attorney-client privilege. The attorney-client privilege means that any communications between attorney and client are protected and no one else can hear them or see them. This is because he was a stand-in attorney. That privilege didn't apply. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. The government said that attorney-client privilege does not apply because he's not a regular attorney. And therefore, whatever we give Anthony Chambers... Other parties can get a hold of it, especially passengers. They could subpoena it and use it to sue the United States government. And here I am as a passenger sitting in the courtroom thinking, well, under what grounds can I sue the United States government? Because the United States government can only be sued for intentional acts against its citizens. So obviously this is somewhat of an admission of an intentional act against the citizens you know, and the passengers on the plane. And the end result was that Judge Edmund said Anthony Chambers cannot have the evidence. So the government won that point. Anthony Chambers was only allowed to have what Abdul Mutalam actually gave to him. So as far as you're concerned, they were protecting this evidence because it was essentially damaging evidence for the government. Without question. If, if, for instance, if I would have gotten a hold of that videotape at Schiphol Airport, I would have sued the government for millions of dollars. Without question, as I expect every passenger on the plane would have, just for the emotional damage that this caused. Let me tell you, it's not easy when you're at 20,000 feet and your plane is on fire and people are screaming for their lives and you have to do an emergency landing. Let me tell you, it's not easy. I went through many, many sleepless nights over this. Horrendous. It was horrendous. And what happened since is even worse, finding out that your own government did it to you on purpose, for propaganda reasons even. Mm-hmm. And you, you had a, a telephone call, did you not, from another passenger telling you that you were mistaken in your yeah, witness? Yeah, you know, that, was, that was interesting, too. 
it was actually someone that my wife was talking to when we were being held at the airport after we landed. His name is Bo Taylor. And he called me out of the blue and he said, look, Kurt, I, I've been seeing your interviews on TV and, and hearing on the radio and such, and I, I just want you to know I think that you're wrong and you should stop because I don't want you to look bad when the truth comes out. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you didn't see Abdul Mutilab, you know, like you said, in, in Amsterdam. What you saw was a, a young boy being escorted by an airline worker. And I, I thought that was weird. And I said, well, how do you know that? Did you see this? And he said, no, I didn't see it at all. I just saw the two of them together after we landed in Detroit when we were waiting together. And, and I thought that was really weird that he's telling me I didn't see what I did when he didn't see it either. Right, indeed. You know, it's a very strange thing. Very strange. Very strange. Yeah. So, I, I, so do you know anything about this guy? Yeah, so I, I started researching him and researching the issue, and I found out from the airline that there are, in fact, no unaccompanied minors on the flight at all, none. Not only that, but you have to be, I believe, age 12 or younger to have an escort, and Abdul Muntalab does not look 12 at all. He could probably pass for a late teenager, but not 12. So I knew that his claim then was false, so then I started looking in the background of Bo Taylor, and I found out that he has all these connections to the intelligence agencies and uh, Department of Defense contractors and members of Congress and that sort of thing through his employer. What an amazing coincidence. What an amazing coincidence. And since that time, he's gone to a new employer, which has very similar connections. So I'm not surprised by that at all. Yes, it's another piece in the puzzle, as you say, indeed. An another piece. Now, another piece is that I believe Mutalab actually pleaded guilty to this offence, but that he must have known that he was going to receive uh, a life imprisonment for this, and that that was a very, very strange thing for somebody to plead guilty under those circumstances. Exactly. You know, being an attorney, I know that nobody ever takes a plea to a life sentence with no chance of ever getting out of prison, which is what this was. He took a plea knowing he would never, ever, under any circumstances, get out of prison. That never happens. Never. Especially when you actually have a defense, which he would have had, you know, a defense of entrapment, if he would have put me on the stand. And he took this plea, I believe it was four days after he made the announcement that I would be testifying in the case. Despite this, I knew from talking to Anthony Chambers, and I'll quote Anthony Chambers here. He told me that uh, this was about a year before the trial. There are very lenient plea deals on the table because the government just wants this case to go away. Uh -huh. That's an exact word-for-word -word quote from Anthony Chambers to me from a year earlier. So I knew that, in fact, if Abdul Mutilab wanted to take a plea, that he could have gotten a very lenient plea. I didn't ask what the terms were, but according to Anthony Chambers, it was a very lenient one. So him taking a plea to life in prison with no chance of parole doesn't make any sense at all except he's being threatened or tortured or promised something that we don't know about, one of the three. That's the only, in the only context that it makes sense at all. And he took this plea, in my opinion, so that I wouldn't take the stand. Obviously, if I took the stand, then it would be very difficult for the media to keep hiding the truth of what occurred, and it would have to most likely report on what I was saying happened and try and explain it away. Mm -hmm. So it effectively shut you up. It shut me up, yeah, basically. Now, despite that, all victims from the flight were given a chance to speak at the sentencing hearing, which took place a couple of months later. 
There's a law that says if you're a victim of a crime, you get to appear at sentencing and speak to the judge about it. So uh, the government could not shut me up at that. However, what it did was it limited each victim's speech to five minutes. Usually you get an unlimited amount of time. This might be the first case ever where I've heard of the judge limiting a victim's speech to five minutes only. You know, usually trials, they bend over backwards for victims to make them feel like they get their say. So again, I thought that was another attack on me. The government knew and the court knew that I would be making a speech and it didn't want me, you know, talking for 30 minutes or an hour. Wanted to shut me up. But I did get my five minutes and I, I prepared a speech very carefully not to get myself in any trouble with the courts, sticking to the guidelines, which were that, you know, I had to talk about how the attack affected my life. You know, I, I took my shots at the government and, and told the truth about what happened. You know, you can read that. It's available online. Just Google my name with victim impact statement behind it. And uh, it made Judge Edmonds very angry, you know, which really is inexplicable unless... You know, obviously she was then on some sort of cover-up, too. I'm not so sure why she got so angry, you know, unless I let the cat out of the bag, which, in fact, is what I did, you know, the little bit that I could. Okay, so uh, you'd maintain, because of all these pieces of the puzzle, when you put them together, I, I think quite rationally you are saying that, in your opinion, that this was a false flag operation. Yeah. Can you explain a bit more what you think the U.S. government's motives would have been for carrying this out? The motives are very obvious, you know, especially look at it in context of some of these recent stories where, you know, people here in the United States don't believe the U.S. government anymore, anything at all, what they say. So keep that in mind, too. This was 2009. We had eight years since the attacks on 9-11 and with no terrorist attacks at all in eight years. The economy was doing very badly. The government was spending outrageous amounts of money on terrorism fighting wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that were unpopular here. They were wasting a lot of money. There were calls from the people to stop the wars and to cut money from the Department of Defense and the terrorism budget. And obviously there are many, many people that make their careers on war and terrorism. And uh, for whatever reason, the United States government has been doing what it can to crack down on rights and freedoms here in the United States since 9-11. You know, there are different theories on why, but it's using terrorism as a means to do that. So when you look at it in that context, the U.S. government needed a terrorist attack to continue the wars it was uh, engaging in, to continue funding these anti-terrorism activities and continue to pass and implement laws restricting rights here in America due to terrorism, one of which was the Patriot Act, the so-called Patriot Act, which gives the government sweeping powers against the citizens of the U.S. to combat terrorism. Now, that was set to expire in early 2010. It needed a vote of Congress to renew it. And the vote actually came up in November. Actually, it might have been even early December 2009, just before our flight, within weeks. And Hillary Clinton, who is then a, a powerful senator, delayed the vote. You can see her clippings on the Internet, her press release. She said, look, we don't have the support to renew the Patriot Act. We're going to delay vote on it until February. So she delayed the vote two or three months, and then obviously we have this plane attack in that time period, and now there's overwhelming support again for anti-terrorism measures, and the Patriot Act is renewed. 
Now, we also have a bill that was before Congress to restrict the use of body scanning machines at airports to only be used if you first set off the metal detectors. That had passed Congress already. It was waiting to be voted on in the Senate on Christmas Day. It would have been voted on shortly after Christmas. And then, of course, we had this attack on Christmas Day. And then Congress and the Senate comes back in January, and then that bill is voted out. And now instead we have the U.S. government purchasing body scanning machines everywhere and installing them in every airport. So, again, which goes along with the United States government's crackdown on freedom and individual rights and pushing business towards the companies of Michael Chertoff, who was head of the Department of Homeland Security, having retired just shortly before this incident took place. So we have, you know, a terrorist attack and now all this money, hundreds of millions of dollars, being funneled toward his company to produce all the body scanning machines. So you can see where the questions come from of how and why this sort of thing took place. And since then, we have our elected leaders here, you know, whenever there's any question on terrorism now, you know, why are we spending money on this? Why are we doing that? You know, why do we need to attack this country? Well, you know, we have the underwear bomber case. Remember the underwear bomber case. It was getting stale, all the references to 9-11. You know, that was getting old. They needed a much newer attack, and now we see that. It gives the leaders their crutch to pass pretty much any kind of anti-terrorism bill or funding that it needs now. And, and since then, we've had a whole series of other terrorist attacks that are questionable at best, which nearly every one of them has had some sort of government involvement in them. And was the underwear bomber case brought out as a defense for this uh, NDAA that was uh, the 2012 one that was passed? It's used as a reason for all of these things, for all of these anti-terrorism measures and funding. It's a universal crutch that our leaders use for everything. You know, if you're a thinking person and don't just buy the propaganda that the government puts out in the press, you can see how all this happens and why. Mm-hmm. But you've decided that you're not actually going to take any case against the U.S. government. Am I right in thinking that, that you've decided not to do that? Yeah, I had two years after the incident to file a case against the United States government, and I went back and forth on it. Uh I'm going to file it. I'm not going to file it. I'm going to file it. I'm not going to file it. And I talked to different attorney friends of mine, seeing if they wanted to take the case, because I didn't really want to take it. It's not any of the areas of law that I practice in. And nobody wanted to take a case against the United States government. Now, I could have done it myself. And at one point, I made up my mind that I was going to, and I actually wrote up the documents to start it. But eventually, I decided to not do it because it would have been an extremely time-consuming and expensive matter for me, which likely would have resulted in no gain to me, maybe even fines, because we have... You know, much of the evidence and the witnesses in Europe, I'm over here, we have the United States government indicating that it's hiding evidence due to the national security. Uh, You can't sue the federal government itself. You have to sue people in the government that did the act to you. I don't know who those were that were behind it. You know, and you can see I'd have to sue under an international aviation treaty because it was an international aviation flight. And you can start seeing the complications and how difficult and time-consuming this would be. Absolutely. And all the time your hands are tied because you can't get hold of any evidence to help you in your case. 
exactly. So eventually I decided to not do it. I don't know if that was the right decision or not. Still to this day, I think maybe I should have done it. Hmm. But I decided to not do it eventually. And it was really tough. I, it went down to the last day. I had the papers in my hand to file them, and I didn't do it. And I guess if you'd gone ahead with it, then another tack that could have been employed was to claim that you are a terrorist or aiding terrorists under the NDNAA. And so. Sure, uh, exactly. You know, take me into custody and without a trial, hold me indefinitely. That's what the NDAA allows the government to do. Yeah. At one point, I know that you were saying you were considering actually leaving the states because you were anticipating that it was going to be a, an economic collapse and that perhaps this infrastructure was being set up in order to keep order. Are you still planning to leave? Yes, I am most definitely leaving the country mm -hmm. because I still believe that. I think economic collapse will happen any time, possibly even this year. Mm -hmm. And I think all these measures will then go into full force and effect. Yeah, there are many people who say that this is a, a kind of turnkey police state that's being set up, and uh, that does seem to fit into the scenario which, you, which you're painting there very clearly. Mm -hmm. I agree. I mean, it doesn't really make sense for the U.S. government to pass all of these anti-freedom and anti-constitutional laws unless it thinks it will need them, and why would it need them? They're certainly not popular with the people here. Uh, to me, it would only need them to save the government workers and politicians themselves from the people. And what kind of scenario would that be? Well, it would have to be somewhere along the lines of economic collapse or maybe nuclear holocaust or something like that. So I think with the government planning like it is, you know, passing one of these laws after another over a period of several years, I would think that it's not nuclear holocaust, but that it's economic collapse because it's taking all this time to pass all these sort of laws. So and I think that's what you'll see. I think you'll see economic collapse. Obviously, anyone that follows economics knows that the U.S. is really teetering on the edge with its economic policy. And, sure. You know, at, at some point, if the dollar becomes worthless, you're going to see widespread hunger here in the United States and the government have to deal with millions of people that want to go after and kill the politicians. Yes, indeed, a very frightening scenario, but I think a very realistic one. Um, is is there anything that uh, you would, I mean, before we end, any thoughts which you'd like to share that you haven't already expressed so far? Well, I just want to say that if any of your listeners think, uh, you know, I'm some kind of conspiracy theorist and I dream this up, I'm some kind of out there person, I don't know. When this happened, I... All I was doing in my mind was helping the government, giving it evidence to try and catch what I thought was one of the most wanted terrorists in the world, the man that helped Abdul Mutalab and Skipple. You know, I thought I was doing what I was supposed to do. You know, if you see something here, you're supposed to say something. That's what I did. Uh, you know, it wasn't until the government started hiding evidence and lying and the press doing the same that I started to see this was something more than what we're being told, and it took me a long, long time to figure out what really happened. So, you know, that's all I really wanted to say. Now, put yourselves in my position and ask yourself, well, what would you do? You know, if something like this happened to you, you would want to know the answers just like I did. You know, I don't, I don't think anyone would be satisfied until it had those answers. Mm -hmm. I think that most of my listeners would be quite quite uh, able to accept what you say there, uh, but uh, many people I know, until they actually experience something like this for themselves, would have difficulty in believing that such a thing could be true. But as I say, I don't think my listeners will have a problem with that at all. Yeah, you know, 
this was really a, a life-changing event for me. I look at my life, you know, being in two parts, before this event happened and after, because my outlook has completely changed 100%, thinking that the U.S. government works in the best interests of the people, which is what I thought before, and that it was largely full of good, honest people. And now it's completely changed. I think the government is extremely dishonest. Nearly everything it says is deceitful, untruthful, propaganda and used for a purpose to take away rights of American citizens. So my view has completely changed due to this incident. Mm -hmm. And because of it, though, I pay very close attention to other similar events that happened, you know, that have happened since, and I can see the same sort of tactics being used in those investigations. And, you know, nearly every one of them seems to be similar to this event in some ways. Sad but true. Yes, it's very interesting that when your eyes are open to this kind of thing, then it's very difficult to watch the television in quite the same way. I find myself very often just speaking back at the television saying, I actually don't believe what you're saying to me at this particular point. Yeah, it actually sickens me to watch the news on TV. I can't do it. I can't watch anything other than the weather report and I have to turn it off. I just get very angry. <laughs> Yeah. I was speaking to uh, the climatologist Tim Ball the other day, and he was saying even the weather's lying at times. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah. There's one last thing that I'd like to ask you, if, if it has affected your view of what happened in 2001 at all in New York City. Yeah. Actually, you know, when I look at this event, it, like I was saying a minute ago, because I knew certain things to be true in this case, I saw the tactics used by the government being played out before me as it was trying to tell a false story to the public, which would be, you know, trying to get witnesses to change their stories, putting out false evidence through the use of the media, giving false statements, changing them repeatedly, hiding evidence during the trials, and then obviously, you know, intimidation of witnesses and that sort of thing to use in order to pass laws. And when I take what I learned from this case and go back and apply it retroactively to the events of 9-11, 2001, I can't believe anything the government says about that event at all. I think it's a complete fabrication. Now, what really happened, I, I'm not really sure, mm -hmm. but I know the repercussions, and I know that what we're being told is not the full truth, for sure. Not in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, and that's certainly a very important starting place for any of us, isn't it, to realize that uh, we're probably being lied to in one way or another about this case and many others. Yeah, in many other sense. For for instance, the uh, the recent Boston bombing here, I think, is another one that's a complete another lie and fabrication, and many others here. But that one that one just seems to be a very obvious one to me, also on a smaller scale. But well, Kurt Haskell, may I say thank you ever so much for speaking with us on the program, spending this time with me. I know you're very busy, so it's great that you've uh, agreed to spend this time with us. Um, I don't think anybody would envy you for what you've been through, and I thank you for your your honesty and your bravery, and uh, very grateful to you for sharing your experience with us. Yep, no problem.